Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Bible Ponder for this week. We are um, continuing our new way of doing the Bible Ponder, where in this first section, we're looking at interpretation, how to read the Bible. And we'll do a series of videos leading up to a discussion at the end. Last week, we did a bit of an overview introduction into what we're going to be talking about in the next few videos to kind of give us a flavor of what's to come. And then I also linked to um, three videos from the Bible Project to have a look at in your spare time to kind of help give some extra flavor, extra um, information that I may not um, have time to give you here, and also I think they do a really good job of presenting things really clearly and really effectively, especially with all the visuals that they have to use. Um, this week, um, I'll be diving into one of the uh, four, four areas, sorry, yeah, one of the four areas that I said we would talk about. I'll do the first one, which is context. And in the description, I'll also link to a few resources there as well. Um, there will be a couple of videos from the Bible Project, again, that are in their same series of interpretation. I think they're really helpful. So after you watch this, um, go have a look at those. And there will be a couple resources also that um, I'll speak a bit about maybe at the end and also tell you a bit about in the description. So today's topic is one of the most important parts of biblical interpretation, and it's also the very first thing we should think about whenever we're looking at a text in the Bible, and that is context, which is essentially the question, what's happening around this text? So when you read a, a single verse in the Bible or a single paragraph or something out of the lectionary or something quoted to you in a devotional book or a different book you're reading, one of the first things we should ask ourselves is what is the context? And when we're talking about context, there are um, basically three areas of context that we want to look at. So the first context that we want to look at is what is the immediate context of this verse or paragraph? What's happening around it? What's the story before? What's the story that comes after? In the Gospels, sometimes there's a um, series of parables that are back to back to back to back. And sometimes we need to ask, what's the parable that comes before? What's the parable that comes after? If you're reading one of Paul's letters, for instance, you might see one um, bit of a verse or one chunk. And you want to ask, well, what's Paul's overall argument in this section? Where is he taking this? What's he talking about? How is he building all of this up? Or if you're looking at a story of, of narrative from the Old Testament, what what's going on here? What's been happening to King David? Is David, you know, David's at home with the story of Bathsheba. He's at home in Jerusalem while the army is off to war. Why, why is he at home? What's happening? What's his history been? The context of these things really helps us um, begin to get a flavor of what's happening in our interpretation. So um, part of this immediate context as well is what sort of literature are we looking at? Um, I'll use these terms because they come from the Bible Project and I'm linking to a lot of their videos. So it's going to be helpful to use the same terminology. Um, so you might have a part of the Bible that is narrative. Something that's just a story. Jesus went here and did this. David went here and did this. Moses went here and did this. 
narrative makes up a huge part of the Bible, most of the Bible. The second um, part of, of style that we're looking at is poetry. Something that is poetic uses metaphor and um, different language like that to paint a picture or what the Bible Project calls prose discourse um, or just kind of other. So those are kind of the three main areas of style, of immediate context. What are we looking at? And then we have the, the second wider context is what is the overall biblical narrative context? So again, where are we in the whole story of the Bible? Are we reading King David in the Old Testament, which is after the giving of the law, but it's long before Jesus? Are we in the prophets? Are we in the prophets that are post-Babylonian exile? That changes what they're writing about, what they're talking about, what they're meaning, the images they're drawing from. Are we reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, these really early books that don't have the fully developed sense of who God is and what the story of God is? Or are we reading gospel? Are we reading Paul's letters? Are we reading other letters in the New Testament from different apostles? Are we reading the book of Revelation, for instance? Where are we in the Bible and in the story of our salvation. So that's the second wider bit of context. And then the third widest bit of context, and this is, is maybe a harder one for us to get at, is what's the wider historical setting? So we can look at where we are in a specific book of the Bible, what kind of literature we're in. We can look then at where that fits into the overall Bible structure but we also need to pay attention to the history. When is this happening? Or when is our best guess for when this hap is happening? Is this the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt? And when might we try and place that historically if we really want to do that? Um, when is King David reigning? What are the other kingdoms around there historically? What's happening with Babylon? There are name-checked characters like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus of Persia. What's the wider historical context of that? Or especially importantly for Jesus, what's the wider historical context for Jesus? What are Jews like in his day? What are Jews like in his specific region versus Jews in Greece or Jews in northern Egypt or Jews um, in the Jordan area or near the Dead Sea? These are important historical context things that help shape what the author is trying to communicate to us. And that's how we have to work to try and get at what that meaning can be, because it can make a big difference sometimes, the historical context. Also within that sort of wider historical context is where the idea of language fits in. So that I know that's a big thing we want to to, to really um, go to whether, you know, we're looking at a Greek word or a Hebrew word and and we preachers like to pull one or two out and, and, and be impressive with, with what we know about it. And that's where this fits in, the idea of language. Um, words are words, and sometimes the word just means what it means. Um, but sometimes a word in a specific language within a historical setting can have a bit of a different flavor to it than our English translations can get. And that's where we want to study the language. So 
most of the Old Testament, 90 some percent of the Old Testament, is written in um, ancient Hebrew, which is different than the modern Hebrew that's spoken in Israel today. And so there's the ancient Hebrew, there's bits of it in Aramaic, very small bits of it in Aramaic. And then the New Testament is written entirely in Greek, though most of the writers of the New Testament, um, Greek might be a second language to them or even a third language. Um, Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic, but his words and thoughts are given to us in Greek because that's the, the most widely spoken language of the day. So that's what it was written in. And that's the way we have it passed down to us. So that's where that language fits in. But it's going to be pretty rare that um, studying the language is going to really massively change um, our theology in big ways. It can help enhance the meaning of the story, but don't worry if you can't get into the language or things like that. It's not going to make or break you. Um, at the end, when I go through some of the resources, though, I will bring up something to do with um, looking up bits of the language that will be helpful. So hopefully, if you're really interested in that, that will be something that you can go to. So that was a whirlwind tour of context. Let's um, put this into practice and look at an example text. And hopefully some of what I said will maybe make more sense. And I know if I've gone a bit fast, you can go back and uh, listen through again. Um, but hopefully this example will help you see what I mean. So the, ver the first verse that we're going to look at as an example is Psalm 137, verse 9. And hopefully this will give us a good idea of not just, uh, of all of how context can work in these circles of context. So Psalm 137, verse 9 says this, Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's pretty rough. This is, is quite a famous verse that people will point to to say, look, the Bible is violent. Look, it's depraved, all of this sort of stuff. So happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Is this God telling us that? Like, you're happy if you take your kids and hit them against rocks. Maybe context will help us. So what's going on in the immediate context? Well, first we need to look at the wider um, context of this specific psalm, which is again one, one song or one poem. But the first thing you'll remember to notice is this is the book of psalms. So what uh, literary style are we in? We're in poetry. So the first clue then we have from that context is this is not concrete specific narrative language. This is not discourse. This is flowery poetic language. So the first clue is going to kind of tell us maybe this isn't being literal. So let's back up then and we'll read the whole psalm and then we'll move wider in our context. Backing up to the beginning of the psalm, it says this. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Sion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, 
May my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So now we have a bit wider context, don't we? We have the whole psalm running up to it. And here's what we'd notice. Where are we in terms of the biblical narrative? We're after the destruction of Jerusalem and into the Babylonian captivity. So we're long after King David, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, but we're, we're well after him, hundreds of years after King David, and we're now into the Babylonian exile. And so what's the attitude then of this writer? They are someone who's living in exile and the people of Babylon are telling them to sing songs, sing happy songs, play your harp. And they're mourning, they're traumatized, they're frustrated and they're angry at their exile and at their tormenting and, and their capture. And they don't want to sing songs. They don't want to be happy. They don't want to pretend. They want to remember their homeland of Jerusalem. And they want God to come and help them. And so within the poetry of this, within the biblical narrative of this, we're starting to see where happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks begins to be a poetic way of, of lashing out and expressing the anger that someone is feeling at their situation, being captured and exiled from their homeland and into Babylon. And then that, of course, gives us also the wider historical picture. We are in the nation of Babylon after Babylon as this wide empire is conquering a huge amount of the ancient Near East and becoming the dominant empire of its day. So hopefully that example kind of helps us see how looking at context as our first port of call for interpretation can be so, so helpful in, in sort of disentangling these um, tricky verses that might pop up here and there if we only read them on their own. So that is our whistle-stop tour of context. The resources that I will link to um, in the description of the video, first, um, a couple of Bible Project videos. Um, like I said, they're about five minutes each. They're super entertaining, super colorful, super fun. Um, have a watch of those once or twice through. Um, they're very interesting, and I think they're really helpful um, bits uh, that, that get into to kind of this context kind of idea. The second is a website called Bible Gateway. And it's BibleGateway.org. Um, some of the website and some of the resources they have are not um, things that I am a big fan of necessarily. I, I wouldn't take everything that they are presenting as um, just on face value. But they have a really, really helpful function in their sort of search capabilities. You can look at many, many, many different versions of the Bible, and you can pick out um, whole chapters and sections and verses, whatever, and it pulls it up on your screen. 
And then they have a series of tools that you can click on. And one of those tools specifically is, is very helpful. I don't use anything else on this website other than this one tool. And you go to it and whatever verse in the Bible you're at, you can click on a button and it will open up for you um, a sort of word by word translation guide that gives you the, the main root word um, that the word, the either the Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek word is translated from. And then it also has a link there to a helpful little resource that, that's a bit old, but still helpful, that will give you some information on that Greek or Hebrew or maybe Aramaic word. And, and so that way you can kind of look up, because sometimes you might want to see what sort of word, like we talk a lot about the word love, in English um, has several different Greek words. So sometimes you're looking at a passage, you might wonder, I wonder what love word is being used here, whether it's agape or eros or phileo or whatever it is. And you can go to biblegateway.org and you can look up that verse and then you can click on the tools and then you can see which word it is. Um, it's helpful to maybe know a bit of the alphabet, but that's a really quick and easy way to get um, some quick information on a on a word or what word is being used um, in the verse you're looking at. So that's a really helpful um, tool on that website. And the third link I'm going to give you might seem silly or counterintuitive, but I promise you it's really good. And that's Wikipedia. Wikipedia won't have everything, and it's going to be really condensed in short, and it might not have every topic that you want to look at. But for, um, I'm, I'm sure, every book of the Bible, most major characters in the Bible, and sometimes even specific stories or passages in the Bible or parables of Jesus, there will be a Wikipedia page about it. And it will give you a pretty balanced and good mix of kind of the history of it, the, the different controversial issues, or maybe different areas where people or different Christians in different places agree or disagree about what that verse is saying or what that book's about. So if you're curious, if you're starting to read a book of the Bible and you want to have a look, honestly, go to Wikipedia. Have a read through the Wikipedia page about that book of the Bible. It'll tell you um, a bit and give you a kind of scholarly consensus about maybe when it was written, about who wrote it, um, and things like that. Um, so it's a, that's a really helpful resource. So don't be afraid of Wikipedia. Most Bible and theology Wikipedia pages are actually quite continuously edited by real academics and real scholars. One of um, my lecturers at Bible College who taught a class on the book of Revelation had done and continues to do, I think, quite a few edits on the book of Revelation Wikipedia page and a few of the other Wikipedia pages that are similar to that. And he has a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, um, and he wrote his dissertation on Revelation. So don't be afraid to trust Wikipedia. It's it's not wild and crazy free-for-all. It, uh, it is actually a, a very good resource to, to have a look at. So those are the resources linked to in the bottom. Um, this is quite a, a bit longer of a video than I've done in the past, um, so apologies for that. I hope it's been interesting, and I really look, look forward to um, chatting about method next week. Thanks for, for listening, and enjoy the resources, and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks.